Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit Amfem.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classic like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold Blooded, The Apollo Gym Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The 27 Club is a production of iHeartRadio and Double Elvis. Ron Pigpen McKernan died at the age of 27, and he lived a life that was completely out of his control. I can give you 27 reasons why that statement is true. Three would be the number of months he lived in a burned-out section of Los Angeles while his band, The Grateful Dead, continued to soundtrack a scene that he loathed. Another two would be the number of barrels of contraband that had to be quickly hidden when LAPD made an unexpected appearance at one of the band's shows. Another two for the number of months he would turn on his love light for a certain raspy-voiced blues singer, even though it never illuminated a path to true love. Another 14 would be the number of acid tests the dead would play before Pigpen was unknowingly dosed and was forced to live through a horrifyingly bad trip. And six would be the number of years Pig had left to live when the Grateful Dead returned to their hometown of San Francisco and began their unlikely ascent to becoming counterculture icons, all totaling 27. On this, our third episode of season five, a soundtrack to a scene, a turned on love light, a horrifyingly bad trip, and Ron Pigpen McKernan. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is the 27 Club.
Ron Pigpen McKernan stood behind his Vox Continental. The open bottle of Thunderbird sitting on top of the organ vibrated with each note. The Grateful Dead were deep into rehearsal. They were sharpening their set, preparing for their trip to Los Angeles to play a series of acid tests for Ken Kesey's pranksters, and hoping to take a major step towards a record deal. They were also following Bear, the group's sound man, and currently their only form of cash flow. San Francisco was getting too hot. Bear's Berkeley home had just been raided, and the authorities said he was making speed. They confiscated his equipment. He needed fewer eyes on him to make his patented acid, especially in the amounts he intended to. But first, the dead needed to get through this rehearsal. The band kicked into Viola Lee Blues, Phil Lush's bass line chugging along while Pig interjected by stabbing chords on his Vox. Pig started belting out the gritty vocal alongside Jerry Garcia, and Pigpen felt at home in the pocket. To him, the blues were comfortable, broken in, like the leather vest and Levi's he'd been wearing for months. Pig was also well on his way to a solid buzz, which made him feel even more comfortable. Suddenly, the band halted to a stop. Come on, Pigpen, it's a B, man. You're singing in D. Pig pleaded his case. Wasn't he singing a B? He was sure he was in key. Jerry assured him he was not. Pigpen wasn't about to challenge Jerry, not regarding music. Plus, the interpersonal dynamics of the band were shifting. Jerry was slowly becoming the dead's de facto leader. He was the source. He had the range, the knowledge. Sure, Pigpen knew the blues, and Phil knew classical, and Billy knew rock and roll, and Bobby knew folk, but Jerry knew a little bit of everything. So what, Pigpen thought. They were a blues band, weren't they? Well, they were supposed to be. Pigpen was confused or frustrated, and maybe a little of both. Jerry, on the other hand, he was visibly frustrated. That way he got when things didn't sound the way he wanted. Pigpen's singing was definitely not sounding the way he wanted. Pigpen let the rest of the dead hear what they wanted to hear. He'd get it together, step out from behind the organ, and just focus on singing. All right, let's hit it again. The band started grooving, only to halt moments later. Pig held them up over and over and over again. He couldn't get it right. He kept slurring his words and dragging behind, his vocal always just too far of a beat behind Jerry's. He felt everyone's eyes burn into him, just like the Thunderbird was burning up his throat. Jerry was heated. He called for Bob to hop on the vocal. Pigpen was done for now. The band kicked in again, this time with Bob singing Pigpen's lines. Pigpen gritted his teeth. Viola Lee Blues was his song. It wasn't about to be pushed out completely. So he joined in anyway, deliberately out of tune. Jerry stopped the jam again. What the fuck? He told Pigpen to pack up his shit and get out. And everyone could see Pig was hammered. He wasn't in the right state to get into a flow state with the rest of the band. His focus was non-existent. Pigpen smiled. He hoped it would disarm Jerry, snap him out of his rage. He brought the bottle of Thunderbird to his lips once more, and Jerry told him to get the bottle out of his sight before he broke it over Pigpen's head. So that's how it's going to be, Pig shrank. Drinking, smoking dope, dropping acid, it was all part of the scene, but once it started altering the dead's performance, that's when lines got crossed. The Grateful Dead were not messing around. They were serious musicians, but 
damn, sometimes the Thunderbird just made the whole thing cook a little bit more. The pig pen left. His rehearsal was over. Maybe Jerry was right. Who the fuck knew? He loved the guy. He was just a little bit of a hard ass sometimes. It would blow over. Two months later, Pigpen sat on the floor, flipping through channels on a television set in front of him. Christ, he'd never seen so many channels on one TV. The dull glow of the box was a trip all on its own, but this was some serious visual a la carte shite. And then again, the dead had finally found themselves in the center of it all. Show business, the dream factory, the magic store, Los Angeles. They'd finally made it, though not as in found success, but as in physically arrived. Their house sat in Watts, a neighborhood in South Los Angeles where racially charged riots had recently destroyed entire city blocks. The place was a smoldering shell of its former self. The aftermath was palpable. There was an uncertain, uneasy energy in the city. Los Angeles was definitely not San Francisco. There was something in the air in LA. It perched on the edge of revolution. A voice called out from the other room. Lunch! And the other members of the dead and their girlfriends were already assembled in the kitchen by the time Pigpen got there. Bear stood in front of the stove, frying a steak. Bear paid the rent on the house they were currently standing in. Bear paid for the instruments and Bear paid for the food, so they were going to eat whatever it was that he was serving. And true to his nickname, Bear ate meat. He was adamant about it. He believed humans were strictly carnivores. Fruits and vegetables were unnecessary. Bear dropped the cooked steak onto the counter and began cutting it up. And then he opened the fridge. Pigpen peered in and it was lined with gallons of milk, cartons of eggs, and one massive carcass on the main shelf. Bear had gone down to the butcher a few days ago to procure the meat and at this point, it looked like the remains of an animal picked apart on the Serengeti. Pigpen's stomach turned as Bear hacked a large piece of meat off the slab and tossed it in the pan. Sure, the food was free, but even steak loses its allure after a while. A few minutes later, Bear dropped the rare cut of meat in front of Pig, and Pig cut into it with a sharp knife. Bear started listing off the benefits of the meal, the entire diet. Pig had heard it all before, but he let Bear ran, as long as he didn't try to push his acid on him. The house in Los Angeles, known as the Big Pink House, was already more than Pig had bargained for. When Bear told him he was heading south from San Francisco, the dead thought that it might be a perfect opportunity to rub shoulders with some music executives and find a way into the business. Hell, maybe even write a few songs while they were at it. So far, it had been a bust. When they arrived, the house had no furniture. They slept on foam mattresses, sat on the floor, and in addition to being subjected to Bear's all-meat diet, the dead's reality was consistently altered. Because Bear Osley didn't go to Los Angeles to cook steaks all day, he went to LA to make a shit ton of acid. Pigpen did all he could do to stay away from the stuff, but it was becoming more difficult, and the house began to feel more like an inescapable prison. Bear packaged LSD from his room in the attic. The powder fell through the floorboards and spread throughout the house forming a layer on everything and everyone, and this, combined with the members of the dead regularly volunteering to be test subjects for Bear, meant nearly everyone was incredibly high at all times. The mad scientists and his experimental subjects. But Pigpen was no guinea pig. He just sat in the corner, sipped on a beer, and watched them trip. 
LSD didn't deter the dead from working, though. Baird did care about their career, and he knew what they were doing was important, and Pigpen was grateful for that. Bear promised he wouldn't make them help package the acid, so while Bear divided the powder into reasonable portions, the dead rehearsed. Their daytime rehearsals kept them sharp, but finding a gig in LA that wasn't an acid test was proving difficult. And since the dead weren't making any money, Bear had them distribute. The band began peddling acid on the street, spreading the good stuff to a whole new area of the Golden State. They sold to locals, which included famous musicians and Hollywood A-listers. It was easy, everyone wanted the stuff. This was Owsley Acid, the real deal, and it sold like hotcakes, expanding Bear's mythology. But mostly, the days ran together. And the only thing that became consistent, apart from their LSD-infested living space and the all-meat diet, were the acid tests. The dead were still operating as a house band for Keezy and the Pranksters, now the LA edition. And the tests were growing bigger and getting stranger. And the strangest test of all came on February 12, 1966, in a dirty warehouse in the middle of Watts. The combination of strobe lights flickering on pale yellow walls and the sound of freaks doing their freak-out thing made the warehouse feel like Dr. Frankenstein's laboratory. At least it did the pig pen. Pig stood on the stage and felt the dilated pupils of every single vampire in the entire room fall upon him. He was used to it by this point, being the only straight one in the room, but tonight felt unusual. All these heads, explorers of the outer rim, Poor souls who are in way too deep without direction. They just stared at him. Pig knew to expect weirdness at an acid test, but seeing his attendance had grown with each happening, they were now not just weird, they were unwieldy. And this assembled mass of more than 150 veterans and newcomers alike had come to this warehouse in Watts for an experience. And there were problems from the moment Neil Cassidy stepped to the microphone and announced that the test was going to begin. Pigpen shook his head. About to begin? These people were already gone, man. The whole thing was out of order, in large part due to the fact that Ken Kesey, the ringleader, the lion tamer, the largest sphere of influence in the group, was in Mexico, on the run after two charges of marijuana possession. The pranksters were doing their best to fill the void, but without their leader, couldn't quite get the organization of the event right. They had booked this warehouse because it was cheap. Neighborhood windows that had been blown out by Molotov cocktails just six months earlier remained shattered, an eerie reminder of the unrest that remained unresolved. Inside the warehouse, two trash barrels, trash barrels full of Kool-Aid were dragged to the center of the floor. And this was all typical of the tests. What wasn't typical was the dosage, which was well past typical. Everyone who took a sip was fried. One barrel was spiked with acid, and the other was, quote, for the kids. But who could tell the difference? The dancers came off the floor begging for something to replenish the sweat dripping off of them. Cotton-mouthed stoners needed to quench their thirst, 
Wires were crossed more than once as cups were filled, and it only took a quick second for a quick drink to become an exponentially trippy experience. While the projectors covered the walls with shapes and a myriad of colors, outside the night was turning a deep shade of disenchanted blue. LAPD had caught wind of the tests earlier in the day and were circling the warehouse. But now they made themselves known. The freaks panicked. They hid the Kool-Aid, some of them split, hopping fences for greener pastures, but there was no escaping. The building was surrounded by barricades, courtesy of LA's finest. The cops didn't know what nefarious intentions these people had. They were still on edge from last August when protesters and cops clashed for six days. Watts burned. 34 people died. LA was rife with anti-police fervor in the wake of the riots and LAPD wasn't taking any chances. Cops moved in and out of the warehouse throughout the evening to monitor the situation, bringing in an air of negative energy and bad vibes with them. Pig watched the cops as they moved through the crowd. He knew he looked like a doper, probably more than most. His beatnik goatee and long bushy hair that his paisley headband could barely contain. He had nothing on him, but still, he could do without being harassed by a boy in blue. Eventually, the cops had seen enough, and they left without making any trouble. As soon as they were gone, the Kool-Aid was brought back out. Pig scanned the room for other members of the dead. They were scattered amongst the attendees. He blamed Bear. Bear was busy getting the band's gear in place. His obsession with how the group sounded had gone too far. He told the dead they sounded like shit live because they couldn't hear each other properly, and his gear was necessary to avoid such issues. What resulted was multiple hours of setup and breakdown before and after the shows, endless amounts of cables to plug in and speakers to rearrange. Just fucking get on with it, man. Pig knew the sound was good when Bear had it down right, but these delays were infuriating. Pigpen just wanted to plug in and play. The rest of the dead could care less. Bear's delays meant more time to partake in the libations. But even the grateful dead, who were as Herculean as anyone when it came to tripping, couldn't handle being on stage after this particular batch of pranksters' Kool-Aid. It started with Jerry. Two songs into the set, and he called it quits. One by one, the other members abandoned ship, each one descending into the crowd below. Pigpen stood on the stage alone. A woman in the crowd searching for her boyfriend hysterically cried out, Ray, Ray, who cares? And that plea could have been a mantra for the evening. It was bizarre enough, poignant enough, just out there enough to fit right in with the absolute mess unfolding in the room. The pranksters took up the task of continuously repeating the plea on the PA over and over again. Who cares? Who cares? Who cares? Pig finished the beer in his hand, the most level-headed person in the room. These tests were supposed to be positive, enlightening, visceral, poetic, but they were also supposed to feature live music. Things were changing, fast, and Pigpen feared they weren't changing for the better. Something had to be done. He was too good-hearted to let these people forget why they were there. Who cares, Ray? Who cares, Ray? I'll tell you who cares. Pigpen grabbed the microphone and stepped to the front of the stage. These cats needed to chill the fuck out. He cleared his throat, and the muffled voices echoed off the walls. And that woman who started it all, she was so far past hysterical that she was becoming manic. 
Ray, 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 I don't care, I don't care. Pig calmly spoke into the microphone and asked the people in the room if they felt good, if they could locate their minds. And he spoke to the woman who had lost her mind and her boyfriend. He reassured her it was all good. He reassured all of them it was all good. Ray would come back, baby. They all had love, love, love. The voice on the PA rang out. Who cares? Who cares? Pig chanted back in a call and response pattern that he cared. It was at first discordant and messy, but eventually became, against all odds, beautiful. Bill Kurtzman was inspired. He hopped on the drums and gave Pig a backdrop to his rap. Pig drew the attention of the room to him, and the chaotic mass began to slowly flow into a calming wave. In a way that only he could, Pig's bluesy serenade stripped back the layer of paranoia and anxiety and turned the vibe on its head. It brought everyone back to Earth, put them back in touch with the present, People joined hands. Pigpen continued to rap, and the woman's boyfriend eventually returned. The night was salvaged. The power of the blues was not to be taken lightly. As dawn broke, Neil Cassidy dumped the remaining Kool-Aid down the storm drain outside, in clear view of the police. In just over two and a half years, possession of LSD would be illegal in the United States. But for now, who cares? Just get rid of it. This near train wreck of an acid test was over. Pigpen couldn't help but feel that the whole scene was coming to an end. They needed to move on or they'd die. The Grateful Dead played a few more acid tests in LA, but the shine was off. Off of the tests, off of the city, off of the experience of living under Bear's roof. The last few shows the Grateful Dead did play left much to be desired. They couldn't seem to get a foothold in town, no matter what they tried. Bear was running out of funds. He manically packaged his remaining acid, just trying to get it out of the house. He was getting paranoid too. Convinced there'd be a repeat of the Berkeley bus, convinced the police would break in at any second and he'd be finished. The communal living had felt necessary to the dead's process, but everyone agreed. This experiment in LA had reached its logical conclusion. The dead needed a reset to go home and rest their bones. That suited Pigpen just fine. The Grateful Dead found a sedate slice of land just north of San Francisco, a fitting prototype for the summer of love. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern-day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. Just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex and then he's very vulnerable so you can kill him easily to die for is available now listen for free on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts pigpen stared deeply into his singing partner's eyes he was lost in them a wild vibrant shade of sapphire pigpen was in a rock and roll band so of course he'd been with girls before but This one, she was a woman. The two took turns belting out blues standards, and although there were dozens of people around them watching, it felt like they were the only two people in the world. They continued to serenade each other. As they traded lines, they also traded swigs of Southern comfort. Pig was transfixed. This woman wasn't just sharing the same bottle with him. They shared the same essence. Pig was losing his goddamn mind the way her hair fell effortlessly around her shoulders, 
her smile and her voice, that voice, the unmistakable voice that would go on to be one of the most influential of all time. Rough, raspy, Janis Joplin was as real as they came. Janis had just begun singing with Big Brother and the Holding Company, and in the summer of 1966, the band and seemingly the entire San Francisco music scene had an open invitation to the Grateful Dead's palatial estate just outside the city, a compound of buildings surrounding a massive adobe mansion, Rancho Olimpali. Discovered by the Dead's manager, Rock Scully, Rancho Olimpali was a time capsule up in the hills, lush green fields, a swimming pool, a fountain. It harkened back 100 years, detached from the modern world. It allowed the dead to continue their communal approach to music making and also provided a secluded spot for the group to do, well, whatever the hell else they wanted to do. During the weekends, the Grateful Dead made their way into the city to gig, but during the week, everyone else made their way out to Olympali for a more freeform version of what the acid test had offered. Pranksters served Kool-Aid and rolled joints. Neil Cassidy roamed the lawn tossing a hammer high in the air and catching it while simultaneously carrying on several conversations. Absolute madness. More than half the participants traipsed around nude. Music filled the air from both the musicians on site and the FM radio. The dead sat around the radio late at night, listening to the future, their future, devising a way to marry their approach to music with what was happening. The Rolling Stones, Bob Dylan, Buddy Guy, Electric blues, the common thread. Pigpen was just happy that the blues were pumping through the FM signal. The dream was alive and well. It was a full year before what would be considered the summer of love, but life on Alampali predicted what was to come. It was a commune outside of reality, an alternate way of life. The gathered residents at Alampali were forging a new path. The BBC even sent a team to investigate the undeniably important cultural experience. They ate together, slept together, created art together, and played music every day. A small stage and instruments were set up just in front of the main house. Different combinations of members from every band present floated on and off the stage, like Big Brother's Janis Joplin and the Dead's Ron Pigpen McKernan. In Pig's eyes, Janis wasn't just radiant, she was a kindred spirit. Pig and Janice were both from small towns, both knee-deep in the blues. They both felt every word they sang in every part of their body. And as Pigpen sang those words and stared into Janice's eyes, some chemical reaction was taking place. Something primal. The two left whatever was happening between them on the Olympali stage that day. Janice and Big Brother went back to their base camp in nearby Lagunitas. As fate would have it, the dead's lease ended a few months later, and they decided to set up shop at a day camp, also in Lagunitas. The camp was dotted with cabins and a main dining hall where the band took meals. It was also just minutes away from where Janice and Big Brother were staying. Janice regularly traveled the dirt path between the band's two properties, emerging from the woods like a force of nature. She'd head straight for the cabin Pig was bunking in. The two would continue to trade blues on Pig's porch throughout the day, and they could be found almost every evening on the piano in the dining hall, entertaining the gathered guests. And they got cozy, sipped Soko, and sang for hours, until they inevitably decided to head back to Pig's cabin and entertain each other there for the rest of the evening. 
Pigpen didn't have the chance to fall in love. He was a kind soul and romantic at heart, but Janice wouldn't be tied down. They were ships in the night, many nights. Even without those long nights with Janice, Lagunitas was a dream for Pig. The enchanted woodland setting was the perfect backdrop for the dead to focus and hone their sound. Their rehearsals were a shape-shifting mix of genres, as blurred as most people's minds were on indefinite doses of Bear's acid. But the more Jerry took the reins, the more Pig's role as frontman diminished. Most days, Pigpen was too drunk to notice. Increasingly, he spent those days just soaking up sunshine, knocking back Southern comfort, and smoking countless cigarettes while Jerry plotted the band's course. Soon, he charted the course right out of the enchanted Lagunitas woods, because something was happening in the city. It was as electrically charged as the looks Pig and Janice gave to each other. San Francisco was quickly taking shape. The Jefferson Airplane, Quicksilver Messenger Service, Moby Grape, Sly, and the Family Stone. Jerry was dead set on getting the dead in the freaky mix. First, the band let Bear go, for now at least. They were tired of his cumbersome stage equipment, and there were no hard feelings, it was just business. Besides, Bear was focused on his own business, the LSD business. As a parting gift, the band's dealer and cash flow source bought them some new equipment. And then Bear packed up his stuff and went back to Berkeley. Next, the dead almost completely dissolved their partnership with the Merry Pranksters. But not before one last show. The effects come on slowly. At first you feel nothing. Maybe a placebo effect or two, it's all in your head. 10 minutes pass and then 15, and you begin to think maybe you got a dud. Maybe it was a weak batch. 20 minutes pass, still nothing. And then, wait, there, there's something. It doesn't happen all at once. It's not like a light switch just gets flicked on. It's a steady climb. It creeps up your spine. And then it's not just in your head, it's in your mind. Colors become more vivid. You wave your hand in front of your face and watch in disbelief as a faint trail emanates from it. Your mind separates itself from its bodily confines. From your head, you begin to question everything. And depending on the amount you've ingested, the aural and visual hallucinations become incredibly vivid they feel real. You feel life as you've never felt it before. This, of course, is the experience of a willing participant on LSD. A participant who, if properly briefed, understands that negative emotions or thoughts can quickly undermine the entire experiment, and that they should be prepared to roll with whatever waves come their way. You know, try to stay positive. But it's hard to stay positive when you've been unknowingly dosed. Dosing was not an uncommon practice in the 1960s, and it was not uncommon amongst members of the acid test scene. They did call themselves pranksters, after all. So what happened when the Grateful Dead stepped off the stage of the San Francisco State Acid Test came as no surprise. It was inevitable. They needed a break before the second set of the night. The first was successful, 
The band sounded good and they were being responsible with the acid they were conscious of ingesting. It was a happy return to the test scene and their first appearance at one since Los Angeles. A six-month hiatus in the woods had done the Grateful Dead good. Things were to that point going according to plan. Pigpen was sipping on a beer when he started to feel it. A slight tingle in his legs. What's this now? The sensation grew. Soon it wasn't just a tingle and it wasn't just his legs. Pig hadn't been drinking that much, had he? He sat down and began to sweat. His heart was pounding. Pigpen focused on his breathing, actively working to slow it down. After a few seconds, he started to even out. He was okay. He tried to stand, or was he already standing? Did he ever sit down? The room stretched out in front of him. The voices of everyone in the room echoed. Everything seemed to be happening in slow motion. The dead's manager, Rock Scully, appeared. What was the matter? Pigpen had no legs, that's what was the matter. His pupils were also dilated. Rock looked down to the open can of beer in Pigpen's hands. Oh no, good God. The next thing Pigpen knew, he was being raced home. He had been dosed and it was anyone's guess to who had done it. Pigpen had always had an open bottle or can of something on stage and the stage was accessible to nearly anyone. Pig worried about what would happen next. He didn't want this shit. He never wanted this shit. And by the time Rock got him home, Pig was well into his trip. He began seeing shapes on the wall, creatures moving about the house. He dove into bed and under the covers, but kept murmuring about what he was seeing. The anxiety shot through him. Seconds stretched into days. Days became months. Time became nothing. Who was he? What was he? Why was he? Pig wrestled with his own mind through the remaining hours of his trip. While back at San Francisco State, the acid test was falling into disarray. Without Pigpen to ground the band and remind them they were on planet Earth, things got weird. Jerry kicked back to Pig's organ and Ken Kesey took center stage. They plowed through a mad, weird set. And as Kesey stood in front of the dead rapping to the crowd, it slowly began to dawn on the band members that there was a decision to make. They could continue to be the Grateful Dead, a.k.a. the Acid Test house band, continue to subject themselves to potential misfires and misadventures with the pranksters, or they could be the Grateful Dead from San Francisco, their own thing. Another test was scheduled for the end of October on Halloween. This would be the graduation, the culmination of the odyssey the tests had embarked on, and Keezy and the pranksters would go out with a bang. It was rumored they intended to dose the entire water supply of the venue. The levels of chaos had left the stratosphere and were heading into another universe, perhaps even a black hole. The Grateful Dead, and especially Pigpen, were leery of the whole thing. They would not play the acid test graduation. They would never play another acid test at all. Four days later, the state of California outlawed the possession of LSD as if the dead needed another sign. They had made their decision. All signs pointed towards it being a good one. They were no longer the house band for Ken Kesey. They were the Grateful Dead from San Francisco. And the scene in San Francisco was about to erupt. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is The 27 Club. The 
27 Club is hosted and produced by me, Jake Brennan, for Double Elvis in partnership with iHeartRadio. Seth Lundy is the lead writer and co-producer. This episode was mixed by Joel Edinburgh. Additional music and score elements by Ryan Spraker and Henry Lunetta. This episode was written by Ted Omo. Story and copy editing by Pat Healy. Sources for this episode are available at doubleelvis.com on the 27 Club series page. Talk to me on social at DisgracelandPod and hang out with me live on my Twitch channel, Disgraceland Talks. For more news on your favorite podcast, follow at Double Elvis on Instagram. Rockarola. What's up for your ears? Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Pitbull. I think that education is the real revolution because as much as we speak about all the problems that there is in society and the world today, my mother's always told me, son, don't worry, the world's always been coming to an end. Don't let it scare you out of living. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.